Alright, everybody. So we're in James chapter 5, and we're going to get through, hopefully, about the first half of that today. Move my podium here a little bit. As you're turning there, I'll flash back to James chapter 4. Verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James has some tough things to say about where your heart is. Um, Friendship with the world versus friendship with God. How do you have a foot in both of those camps? Um, as they say, when you, when you straddle the fence, it's fine until the next fence post comes along. It's tough to straddle that fence, and I think the, the concern of James is that we, we pick the side with God on it, right? So he's going to revisit this topic a bit in chapter 5, especially the, the first section of it that we'll start with. Uh, my Bible says the topic, warning to the rich. Warning to the rich. Now, when we think of someone who's rich, we usually think of wherever we are as neutral, and someone two or three times whatever that is, or 10 or 20 times whatever that is, well then they're rich. Um, so by definition, we just naturally think of someone who's rich as someone richer than us. Uh, it um, it reminds me of a, a little saying that Chuck Swindoll said one time. He was talking with a, a missionary who it was working in uh, a, a very poverty-stricken third world country and and they asked the missionary, what is the biggest problem facing the people that you take care of? And I think I've shared this before, but the answer was materialism. Said, materialism, these people don't have anything. He said, well, you know how it is. You know, the guy with the thatch roof wants a brick roof, and the guy with a brick roof wants a metal roof, and everybody wants the next thing. So uh, materialism doesn't necessarily have to do with how much you have but but the more you have then the weightier the problem gets and you know we we have to acknowledge that we are definitely in the what do they say the richest one percent of the world by far uh, by far so warning to the rich um, the point is that's that's partially us. Now, uh, I guess I should say there is debate about who James is writing to. Is he writing to um, Christians in the church who are rich and are still struggling with this this concept of how you know? I guess to use more modern theology, would say is is God 
the Lord of their life with respect to their checkbook? Uh, is he writing to those folks, um, people very much like us, perhaps, or is he writing to the pagan rich, the, the non-Christian rich who might be um, in and among the members of the church, or um, is he writing to those folks for the sake of the Christians who are hearing his opinion about that? And I think it's one of those things, uh, classic in scripture, where it's probably all of that. It's probably all of that. So let's, let's read. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow. That's pretty heavy stuff there, right? Pretty heavy stuff. You know, when we went through Isaiah, we talked about that we had to attune our ear to hear the word of a prophet, which was very often in judgmental tones and using sweeping language, uh, language that sometimes had to do with what was going on right now and sometimes would look beyond that. And sometimes the prophet would look beyond that period of time as if it had kind of already happened. And, and in, in this section, James is definitely wearing uh, the mantle of a prophet. He has something to say, and he's using this, this big, shall I say, rich prophetic language because it's talking about the current state as if it's already happened. Look at this back in verse 2, or I guess verse 1. So he says, the miseries that are coming upon you, so, so he's predicting, look what's ahead. But now he, in verse 2, he switches to the present tense as if that thing that is coming upon you is so real in his mind he can see it with such clarity as it's as if it's already happened. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. Now, you can nitpick. Some of us are prone to nitpicking. And they say, well, you know, gold and silver doesn't corrode. It doesn't rust and rot away. It's why it's a precious metal. It doesn't do that. Of course, it just tarnishes and it doesn't necessarily... That's nitpicking. He is speaking in broad prophetic terms about what can happen to your riches. And the point is that we stow them away and they're not accomplishing anything. This very first word in verse 2, your riches... Um, they say that 
this as well as the language for the rest of the chapter or rest of this passage rather is is especially focused on landowners on landowners this was a specific type of wealth that really was a province of of a landowner you might picture a plantation owner and there's a lot that's not said here that is kind of hinted at you know very quickly we get into this concept of the the impact of the laborers so the wealthiest of the wealthy were were landowners plantation owners literally getting rich off the backs of laborers and these weren't necessarily all just laborers that were supposed to get a wage there was often slave labor involved here as well and throughout the Roman Empire the and there's a lot of stuff I read about this the most effective way to become very very rich was to have a big plantation have a lot of slaves and and reap the benefits of their work and pay them little to nothing and then when they got old you sell them and you buy new ones just like you'd buy a new tractor in fact they were considered equipment just time to trade out for a newer model so when it says in verse 4 behold the wages of the laborers who have mowed your field which you had kept back by fraud are crying out against you James is really looking at not just the wealth that they have but how did they get it um, how did they get it and uh, the indictment here is not good it's interesting it says the wages this money that is owed them the very money that is currently in his storehouse is crying out an indictment to the person that is owning those slaves and one commentator I think rightly said it reminds you when there was you know the perhaps the most um, unjustifiable killing if there ever are degrees of that I don't know that's probably not accurate but Cain and Abel and as Abel's blood was spilled it said that his very blood cried out um, the indictment there and that's the same sort of language that we have here behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you there's this indictment crying out against you and then it says the harvesters themselves are crying out and they're crying out to the Lord of hosts and it says God's heard those cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts um, this is pretty powerful uh, language uh, that James is is uh, uh, laying out there uh, one commentator said James provides four reasons for the wealthy landowners to weep. Their wealth is temporal and subject to the ravages of time. They are, number two, they are guilty of a crime against their sisters and brothers. Number three, they will be judged and condemned for this selfish use of temporal goods. And 
They've been adding to their material treasure as if the world will go on forever. This presumption, we've talked about this before, you know, the landowner that was told, you know, tonight your soul will be required from you, you know, it was just assumed that everything's going to go on and this trust becomes in the storehouse rather than in God. Verse 5 alludes to that. It says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What that means is that there is so much going on around you and you don't care. It is all about you. The world is crazy around you. This is a day of slaughter. But you've lived in luxury and in self-indulgence so much so in verse 6 you've condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you you've beat down this person and in effect have murdered them he does not resist you Uh, so this is this is serious a serious indictment Um, another passage I thought was good it says the wealthy should understand that God takes it personally when we treat others like garbage as if they do not deserve even our attention as they die and of course we know the Matthew 25 passage that says however you treated those folks that's as as if you've done it to me that way so warning to the rich so this this i mean what do we do with this what do we do with this this big condemnation about wealth um to add to maybe more familiar you know it's sometimes as we've talked about many of the benefits of going verse by verse through through books of the bible is that we realize how selective we are, right? I mean, those passages in, in James 1 are just so familiar to us, you know, that counted all joy about the testing of your faith and person, you know, we, those are very, I forgot this section was here. I didn't remember this, really. What's this doing here? <laughs> I just did not remember that. Here's some other passages that might be more familiar. 1 Timothy 6, 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who desire to be rich. Here Paul says, even if you're not rich yet, you may be on the road to that other side of the fence because it's a temptation. It's going to lead you into a trap. 
Luke records, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus speaking there, of course. Um, where are we going to put our treasure? And this reminder again of how close James was to his brother's teaching. It's, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Where is your heart? And, you know, I think that the biggest thing in this these first few verses of chapter 5 It's not just the richness, it's the self-indulgence, the obliviousness, the, the actual um, just total self-centeredness that that richness brings. Uh, that's the big deal. Um, I uh, was looking at another commentator's um, breaking this down and they said one of the things that happens with riches is that we ignore God. Um, the lower your bank account, the more you pray about your bank account, right? Um, I, I think we can all relate to that. Um, sometimes when things are pressing, you, you pray about that. Um, if you're wealthy, you might ignore your brothers and sisters more. And this talks about that. Um, and then it says, we don't take seriously the coming judgment. We get so isolated in ourselves, And it made me think about this concept of ignoring things and how close that is to the word ignorance. You know, ignorance we think of as someone who is just literally doesn't know about something. They're, they're ignorant, and it doesn't necessarily mean something bad. It's just, you know... There are many things of which I am ignorant. I've just not, I just have big gaps in my knowledge, as we all do. But this is ignorance. This is ignoring God, ignoring our brothers and sisters, and ignoring the coming judgment. This was another eye opener for me. I thought I knew the main reason that there was judgment on Sodom. We've all heard the story, right? Uh, lots there in Sodom, and you know we hear about rampant sexuality and homosexuality and the judgment of God. Listen to this from Ezekiel, who has just got through, who's not through actually, but is in the process of condemning um, the whoring of Jerusalem for all manner of, of things, forsaking their first love, of course. And then it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Where is that? Yeah. <laughs> Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. So... 
it wasn't just perversion it was excess of food and prosperous ease but not aiding the poor and needy what's that quote you always have from uh, your slouching toward Gomorrah that uh, if, uh, I, I'll probably get it wrong but if, if God doesn't have some sort of judgment on America he owes them an apology um, just to close this section I better get on with it I, I really like this summary uh, from um, one author it says James does not condemn riches per se but rather the fact that the wealthy have not sought to use their wealth to alleviate the sufferings of the poor American evangelicals are wealthy satiated and at ease so the appeal of James resounds across the centuries to our ears. We must open our eyes to the scriptures and our ears to God, and we must prayerfully consider how best to use our money. Our failure to act is a sin more grievous than we have grievous than we have imagined. Um, had I had time, I was going to mention more extensively, but I'll just mention very briefly. Uh, you remember the story of William. Wilberforce, who was uh, the gentleman uh, from Great Britain who really helped uh, uh, move toward the abolishment of the slave trade for the United Kingdom. And I thought Wikipedia is not perfect, but I, I saw this uh, as, it, as it pertained to this. It says, in 1785, he became an evangelical Christian which resulted in major changes to his lifestyle and a lifelong concern for reform. He became a Christian, which resulted in major changes to his lifestyle and a lifelong concern for reform. Isn't that what we've been saying that James is talking about? If you're going to be a Christian, you ought to act like it. It ought to look different. I didn't realize this but it said at the time that of Wilberforce's conversion as he was working on breaking down this slave trade where goods would be made in Great Britain, traded for slaves in Africa, they would take them to the West Indies and dump off the slaves and so forth. At one time that accounted for 80% of Great Britain's income. But he became a Christian and it changed. All right, verse 7. You've been patient, so <laughs> we'll talk about patience. And we'll go through verse 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful.
I circled in my Bible all the times when it says be patient. In that first verse and a half, three times. Be patient. Keep being patient. You also, be patient. Um, uh, I don't know that it's any big surprise why we would need to be told that so many times. Uh, because that is not our nature. That is not our nature. Um, it says, be the, it has the example, it tells us what to do, right? Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Um, as God is bringing about his kingdom, be patient. And then when you have this example, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. It's important that we see the example that James uses. It says, see how the farmer waits. So how does the farmer wait? Expectantly. Farmer waits expectantly. farmer waits for the rain but it's very unusual to see a farmer not doing something there is a lot of work during that waiting right there's cultivating there's weeding there's checking after irrigation there's you know keeping the animals out there's all sorts of stuff involved in this waiting. It is a very active, very busy type of patience. <coughs> so there's waiting, but there's also doing in the waiting. And then we have this little thing in here. It says, verse 9, don't grumble against one another. You know, there's, don't you know, most we know grumbleness, or gr grumbleness, I'm not sure that's a word. <laughs> Grumbling, maybe it should be a word. Um, verse 4, I mean, chapter 4, it says, What quarrels, what causes quarrels and fights among you? It's these passions that war within you, it's a heart issue. This, this enemy of, of patience is grumbling. You know, you look around and it's discontentment. It's, you know, that makes you not want to be patient you you want to be where someone else is you know and it says no no there's blessings for the person who is steadfast so I was going to turn this part over to get your thoughts about patience uh, but I couldn't pass up this uh, little quote from Will, Wad Will Rogers he said people who fly into a rage always make a bad landing <laughs> I thought that was pretty good um, alright so question number one why is it hard to be patient we're not born with patience it's not it's just not our nature that's a good one why are we why is it hard to be patient we are self-centered excellent what else? 
our culture teaches us this that we must must be accomplishing so our, our culture is designed to make us discontented right that's the nature of advertising you want to make someone unhappy so they can buy your happiness that's what advertising is right Dan a few years ago it always bothered me why people retired got in line and always got in such a hurry so I asked one of my dad I said you're not working you don't have anywhere to go why does bother standing in line bother you he said because I don't want to die in line <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have a permanent um, uh, reminder. Um, I never allow myself to really get impatient because I have made so many people wait. <laughs> I, have, I, I, have, I have exactly zero justification for ever being impatient with anyone. That's the truth. That is absolutely the truth. Usually, several years old. <laughs> Why is patience hard? Here's some quick things I put down. We are often going through trouble and it's often unpleasant and maybe even painful. We're usually in situations that are out of our control. We're often in situations where we're stressed because we don't know what's going to happen. It makes us insecure. And we don't necessarily have the hope that things will be better. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to be in that place when you're uncomfortable. All right, next one. What are the benefits of waiting? It builds character. It builds character. We, we heard that earlier, right? Someone's been paying attention. It builds character. What else? This too shall pass. Uh, all right. This too shall pass. All right, so the benefits of waiting, maybe it... It's it's never going to be this way forever, right? Leah? Often you re often you appreciate something more that you had to wait for. Mm -hmm. You might appreciate it more if you have to wait for it. Reward. Sometimes it it takes time to to for good things to happen, and you are rewarded for your patience sometimes. So you might have something better to celebrate since you've been waiting. It might keep you from making a mistake. It might keep you from making a mistake. I love that. It helps us focus on the other things that we're blessed with. I think you hit all of those that I had listed. Uh, I, I said we learn to be content in our current circumstances. That's exactly what you said. Um, our priorities and our perspective change, uh, you hit on those. Our faith increases, you hit on that. The other one I put is that we realize that quick fixes usually aren't fixes. <laughs> right? Um, in my mind, I'm picturing quick fixes that I attempted in my various uh, <laughs> times of home ownership and, and how many times I had to make time to do it again. Um, so, last question. Why can the Christian have hope in their patience? Because he, because he promises. He promises 
to get us through things. Okay. We know whatever we're going through here is not the end. This is not the end. This is not the end. What else? God's faithfulness never changes. We hear about the reason James tells us, and she's right on it, it has to do with the character of the God that we serve. Look in this last section of, of verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. So we start to think that our focus is on Job, but no, it says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The hope we have is always anchored by the character of the God that we serve. We're depending on him and his unchanging compassion for our hope. And if you look at it, this whole section about patience, it starts with the character of God and it ends with the character of God. First verse it says, until the coming of the Lord. This concept of the coming of the Lord, that's, what does that mean? That means God's not done yet. God's still working. We can count on that. Be patient until, he doesn't say be patient forever, till you die waiting in line. Be patient until God shows up. And the nature of God is that God will show up for us. God is compassionate and merciful. All right, last thoughts. I have to share this. I almost died in the grocery line the other day. <laughs> shopping with Allison. She was through, had to wait on three or four people. She had her brushes in the car, came back to get me, and I was still waiting. And so I said, Allison, please come up here and forge my name so I can go on. Here's my credit card. Just come sign. Mom, you know I can't do that. I said, Allison, I'm dying. My back is going, my leg is going, my foot is hurting. But the Lord wasn't ready for me yet. I made it. Then I propped up and up. But I really thought I was going to die. <laughs> 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 no, that was in uh, 30 minutes. <laughs> Let me paraphrase. You have heard of the steadfastness of Gwyn. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these verses that uh, we need to wrestle with. Um, two tough ones. What do we do when we're in a bad place? What do we do when we're uncomfortable, when we're insecure, and we don't know what's going to happen next? How do we be patient? And then what do we do with our riches? We thank you for the many blessings that we have, and we pray that you'd prick our conscience to be better and better stewards in the way that you would have us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.